It's time now for the PDXO WASP podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show. Our special guest today is Jim Manico. He's a founder of Manicode Security, where he trains software developers on secure coding and security engineering. He is also the co-founder of the local Mocha Security Conference in Hawaii, as well as an investor and advisor for Bit Discovery and Signal Sciences. Jim is a frequent speaker on secure software practices and is a member of the Java One Rockstar speaker community. He's the author of Ironclad Java, Building Secure Web Applications from McGraw-Hill. For more information about Jim, please visit this podcast RSS feed for details and links. Jim Manico, thank you so much for stopping by today. Absolutely, John. Thank you for having me on your show. How did you get your start into security? Was it always in your blood or was it happenstance? You know, I'm, I, I live on the island of Kauai and I've, I've been a remote worker and I, and I travel a lot for work for over 20 years. About close to close to like 18, 19 years ago, I was teaching high school tech classes in physics during the dot-com, uh, the end of the dot-com bust. And I was just going back in the industry. I was looking for jobs. And there was a there was somebody looking for a high-tech programmer on Kauai. That's what I did. You know, I was a, been a programmer my whole life. And I, I was ready to get out of out of doing private education um, in, in the schools in a private school system. So I interviewed with Stephen Northcutt with the Sands Institute. And I was still keeping my skills active. I was working as a developer at night on the side in addition to doing school stuff. So I was still an active developer. And he hired me to do programming for him. And he was like, look. Jim, I'm not gonna. I'm probably not gonna pay as much as I pay other other senior programming jobs that you can get right now. But I will teach you about security and programming, and you and you will thank me for this moment later in your career. And I believed him and, and went with it. And Stephen was right. Stephen Northcutt is the single like biggest help to my entire career. Stephen and Johannes Ulrich are the people who really taught me about security for the first time. And I got I got to tell you, working for Sands was hard on me. It was a different culture than I'm used to working for, and learning about security was hard on me. It was stranger in a strange land. But I look back on that time 20 years later, and I am grateful, extremely grateful for what Stephen Northcutt, the Sands Institute, and all of those early opportunities did for me and helping me start my security career. You're definitely one of the thought leaders. We talked with Tanya Janka as well and some others. It seems like the thing that's common amongst you is you had a really good mentor. You know, the Automotive Linux Group said the single non-debatable aspect of building secure software is for all your developers to have access to an application security expert during development. And so it's funny, like in terms of building your career of, in, in terms of application security and other security disciplines, having a mentor is critical. But even in, in what I care about, application security, software security, even in the SDLC, the one main factor that you cannot negotiate in modern software development is access to an expert to help you along the way. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the early mentorship I had. And again, the, my, I, I, let me see if I can remember. It was Johannes Ulrich and Brian Correa. I'm getting his name wrong, but Brian, he was one of the developers at SANS because they're, they're building web software in the security industry. You're going to get a lot of attacks. So these folks are already defending their sites from active attacks and are deep in the know of secure software before anybody was really talking about it. And, and it's, it's with these two gentlemen and other programmers at SANS 
and a community of other instructors who were into application security that really taught me about the original principles of secure software. And from then I just got the bug and I just, I read, I read white papers for a hobby now as for fun, I read white papers. So I'm grateful that they, that I got the bug, but there has to be, and this is important. There has to be a point though, where you're not leaning on mentorship anymore. There has to be a point where you got to read, you got to study, experiment, mess with code and can, and, communicate with other people, get their opinions, cause trouble on Twitter and hopefully start good discussions. (laughs) You have to do your work and you can't just lean on a mentor to spoon feed you. On that note, I probably get one or two people a month asking for mentorship and I give them homework right away. And that that scares off 80% of people. It's like, this is great. All right, you want mentorship? Let's see if you want to do work. Go read this document. It's a hard document to read, so go read it three times. Go read ASVS 4.01 and come back and ask me 10 intelligent questions about it that, that you're not sure about. And then we'll start a mentorship. That's I usually give an assignment like that. And I tell you, that immediately causes anywhere from 80 to 90% of people who want assistance they drop out. I want to learn about application security. I want to be a pen tester. I want to get in the security industry. What should I do, Jim? Oh, hard work, reading, <laughs> hard work, and then more hard work and study and discipline and experimentation. And oh, really? Oh, I'm out. Goodbye. So it takes a lot of hard work and dedication just to be successful in security. It's a, it's a multi-discipline discipline. It's hard. Definitely. Jim, so one of the things you said in there that you're passionate about is bringing security to developers. And, you know, in our own local OWASP chapter here in Portland, Oregon, and, and then also nationally, it's hard at, at OWASP to, to continually bring in developers into the fold. Oftentimes, chapters get the people that want to become pen testers or get people who are already in information security or application security. But what have you seen? I mean, you, you do trains all over the world. What do you see different chapters do to really engage developers and meet developers where they're at and facilitate that, you know, that work that we're ultimately about, which is making more secure software? I really think it's about how the chapter leadership is good at bringing developers in. I know Orange County in California, they're just a real development heavy group. So they naturally bring developers in. I know some of the, the former leaders of Orange County are, are Haral, Neil Matatal, and Ron Paris. And all three of them are software development leaders. And so, and, and they just naturally are part of the community of developers and they naturally would, would bring them in. But I think there's a bigger problem here. Developers don't, are busy developing. <laughs> it's a, they don't want to have to go to another community to learn about security because it often gets in the way of functionality. So I think more important for the chapters is to do outreach to developer communities. And this is hard. This is a pain. But I, I've had success not going to security meetups talking about application security. Rarely is that helpful in terms of reaching a good number of people. But if I go to a developer meetup and talk about security, I'm the only person talking about security in those meetups. And I have a developer audience and I can upshift and talk about much more difficult concepts when I'm in front of developers. No offense, when I'm in front of a pen test group, I have to dumb myself down and not get too complicated about the inner workings of web technology or I lose the audience. But when I'm with the, and I focus on assessment type of of stories and technology, but no offense, that's a downshift in terms of depth. When I start talking to developers, I can upshift, talk about microservice architectural trade-offs and all these issues that are security AppSec centric, but they're developer centric. And I have to leave OWASP and outreach at developer meetings, like the different Java meetings, a Java conference coming up, going to different developer meetups. 
giving talks to developer communities. And this is hard work, David and John. This is really hard work. But you're going to do a better job at reaching developers if you have a group at your chapter who helps facilitate outreach to developers. And that's hard. Okay, so follow up on that. So developers, yeah, super, super busy. And you get them really thinking about things and, and they like digging into the weeds and, and getting getting better. When it comes to working at places, there's also the tension of, of product. So what have you seen? Like, What have you read? What are some of the white papers or company articles, blog posts that you think really get to helping product people understand application security and, and how a lot of it is really feature feature work? You mean, so you're, you just asked me, how do I get a product manager who's driving feature development to care about security? Is that your essential question? Yeah, yeah. That's a great, that's a great question. You have to use a sledgehammer. There's no white paper or subtlety that's ever going to work. There's no education that's going to work. There's no uh, suggestion. I could like sit and train a product owner for days on the details of application security. And unless I metaphorically tie them down and beat them with a ball peen hammer until they listen, they are not going to listen to about security for any reason. In fact, I've been in situations at several Fortune 500s where the CEO or other executive retrained the entire product management staff and told them they have to focus on security, that it was a part of their job and they had to now carry a care about this non-effing functional set of requirements. So you just told a product manager, a product owner, a marketing professional who spent their whole career driving functionality that they now have to care about NFRs, non-functional requirements. And that just doesn't work for about 20% of product managers. So here's how you do this. You force the C-level to train product managers at, at that level of, of mission that they now have to care about security and give them the tools to do it. Things like security requirements, uh, other tech, you know, security engineering and support, a center of excellence they can tap into, good authentication and access control and crypto layers they can reuse. You got to empower them. And then you got to like fire 20% of them for a big company because no matter what you do, they've been trained to care about functionality for so long, some of them just won't flip and they need to go. Go work for a company that doesn't care about security and go pump features out. Goodbye. And the other 80% who listened, we have to really train them hard on driving security requirements and non-functional requirements, which is this big culture shock and culture change for most product managers. So I hate to sound so Sicilian, but there's no magic way to get product owners to care about security. You got to use blunt techniques. It's part of your job or you're fired. And then still, you usually have to get rid of 20% who won't do it because it's against their culture. That's my take on that. But I did recently see your AppSec Kali 2019 keynote address. And anytime I see something that's related to a timeline, and this is the extremely unabridged history of application security, I always think that always gives something better in terms of perspective of what we're talking about, like in trends. We are in the trenches here and we're fighting every day from AppSec security. Everyone claims that they, they want security, but when it comes down to action, it seems like the only stick you have, it's the Roosevelt stick, right? Walk softly, carry a big stick, and that's the policy. Uh, but sometimes just at a human level, you don't really want to put that stick out. It's a bit disheartening. But in that message, in that keynote address that you gave, you, you had a positive message and you said that things are actually getting better in our industry. Why is that? Let me go back a tick. I, I, I see 80% of product managers that go through basic like re-education camps or get trained about security to integrate it into their job and take care of it well. And usually a C-level man, C mandate drives that. 
I, I hate to bring up negativity, but the, the only reason I do is because I, I want to state again, driving non-functional security features is often against the grain of a product manager. And some of them really have difficulty making the shift, even when prepped to do so. I'll just leave it at that. Let's shift gears to how things are getting better, right? Think about the problem of third-party libraries. For example, back in 2013, when it was first added to the OWASP Top 10, I feel like third-party libraries are one of the bigger problems in application security today. And back in 2013, we had little to no awareness and tooling. Then we jump ahead a few years, uh, let's say go three years ago, we have the introduction of now more and more of these different tools. WackDuck is mature at this point. Got SNCC joining the party and White Source has their solution. And, and now SNCC today is a $2 billion behemoth, focuses primarily on this problem. And even better, like we have tools like Dependabot and we have tools like like uh, in GitHub, you got white source Bolt, which freely will, sca- will constantly scan your app looking for out-of-date libraries and issue automatic PRs. We have all kinds of dependency management automation in the world of open source. And not only that, but we have discipline of like test-first development, unit testing, and all the automation of testing that's been driven by the DevOps movement for the last decade. And you put all this together, like a, a, a DevOps-type automation Tons of like unit testing and test first development mentalities. You can automate your functional testing. If you're QA and you're clicking on things, you're really not doing QA at this level. We want to automate that stuff as much as possible. So this culture of automated QA, mix that with DevOps, mix that with security testing and automated tools that keep your third-party libraries up to date, that issue PRs automatically when a library's out of date. Wow, in seven years, we went from being in the stone age around third-party library security to have ultra-modern tooling to handle it from a variety of different perspectives. So like the raw technology behind developing software, you know, if, 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 if you stick with the trends, if you have the luxury of, of building a new project, right, if you have the luxury of having access to application security expertise in your company as you're building software, whoa, we've come a long way in every way I can measure when it comes to application security. Again, Jen, you're out, you're consulting with a number of the Fortune 500 companies and getting in there and seeing what they're doing. What would you say about, like, we have all this automation capability and, and DevSecOps capability. How do you see big companies adopting that? Like, I know we, we've started seeing it some with the Air Force, Air Force One, I think they're calling it their DevSecOps initiative. But what do you see in the big companies? Are they are they embracing? I, th- I think that my personal experience is less valuable than some of the broader studies out there. I would take a look at OpenSAM or more particular. I'd look, I'd take a look at the BSIM study. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're, they're really using good data science to, and asking good questions at a really rich level. So, so you can understand what a broad spectrum of companies are doing. I, I'll tell you about my experience, but I really want folks not to take my subjective experience of my limited customer base as truth. That's just what I see. And I'm, and I'm less, in security teams. I'm working more in the development shops directly. I rarely work with security officers or security teams. So number one, go to BSIM. The trend is automate, obviously. I mean, the trend is like anytime you're automating, you're richly automating the developer the developer processes, it's always going to be a win. Even if you do, here's the thing I've seen from, from some, I've seen some do some real sloppy DevOps and still get tangible benefits out of it. So just make, I gotta, you gotta be honest, this has been something we've been told to do for 20 years. Hey, stop doing that manually, write a script around that. So DevOps is not new. Just the name 
the name is new and adding security testing to it is new. But the concepts around DevOps are 20 plus years old. They're nothing new. And But I see that now. I, but I see the tools around that developer automation, like I was just saying, get extremely mature in, in just the last couple of years. As, as so much more attention is put on it. So I'm seeing even more legacy type companies in terms of software development trying to automate all aspects of, of software development delivery at some level. And so that's exciting. Places where I would expect not to see it, I see them firing up Jenkins and trying to get it to work. So that, 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 and, and again, even if you're doing it sloppy, I hate to say, I see tangible benefits from the automated, automation of software processes, no matter how you're doing it from what I see. And again, and I want, I want to end again, give BSIM a read. This is the building security and maturity model. And I don't even really think it's a maturity model. It's just a really good study. And you can you can get really rich data about what different size companies are doing. And I think that's the best way to answer your question professionally. And do you know, does BSIM, do they open up that data via an API? Can you interrogate it? I'm, I'm not sure. I, mean, I, I know that I know that OpenSAM is more open and BSIM is more proprietary. I don't know the, the inner details of it. I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that. But that's, but that's where I would, and if you have a better study, I would love to point to open data and an open study. Believe me, I would. So I look, OpenSAM is beginning this process, right? Where OpenSAM now has an open data collection system. I would start there. And I believe that started already. So I look at OpenSAM for open data. You know, BSIM has been going around for a while. It's the only other study I know of. And if anyone listening knows of other studies about SDLC and, and different software engineering processes, I'd love to hear about it. Jim, uh, I admittingly, and, and like many others, followed the OWASP top 10 as a kind of a quasi standard, right? I, I developed a curriculum around it. I even mentioned it in policy. And I found out later that was not the right way to go. With that said, what is the OWASP application security verification standard project? And why should people use it in place of the OWASP top 10? Oh, I like, I like that question a lot. And while, while the question's coming in, I'm hitting the links. So the OWASP Application Security Verification Standard, known as the ASVS, this provides a basis for testing web application technical security controls and also provides developers a list of requirements for secure development. Let's go back 15 years when the first batch of application security firms start to accelerate. We have like Aspect Security, you got Sigital is a big behemoth in this area, and a whole bunch of other AppSec firms are beginning to pop up as that service is needed. One of the things that companies would hire this first wave of AppSec companies to do is build us a requirement list for our developers on security. And this would cost anywhere from 20 plus grand for such a service to write this custom requirement list. And so ASVS is an open version of that. It's essentially a list of requirements to drive secure development in, at three levels. There's, a, there's about 300 requirements, and they're level one, two, and three. Level one being something I can scan and find easy. So level two, yeah, we're now dealing with sensitive data and more critical risks, and I can only find certain vulnerabilities at level two with scanning. Level three is for critical infrastructure real high-end security needs and high-risk needs. And that's, that's for level three. Something shooting missiles, for example, or, or uh, software managing billions of personal data records or other kind of infrastructure, we, we have a level three set of requirements. And so you can pick, so grab ASVS, look at L1. That's your first batch of security requirements to consider 
to drive an entire program. Developers can use it as a secure coding standard and testers can use it as an assessment standard. And I recommend you don't use it out of the box. Get a consultant or an internal resource and fork it with your developers so it's a bit more custom to your organization and then use it as a standard, as a basis for driving an application security program. The OWASP Top 10, it is cited by PCI DSS, the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. And that moment, it turned OWASP Top 10 into a pseudo standard. And it was a mistake. So what we should do with the OWASP Top 10 is you give it to someone, you read it, you talk about it in a blog, you talk about it in a podcast, hello, it, it stirs conversation, go ahead and do conference talks on it and do your dance on stage. I do, I sure do myself. And then you put the OWASP top 10 down and pick up the ASVS and everything else you do with AppSec is that. So that's the main rule of the OWASP top 10. You cannot run a application security program on a top 10 list. You cannot do it. You need a more comprehensive standard because application security is full of rich details, full of minutia that needs to be followed to gain success. Have you heard anything from PCI DSS, from the standards committee, whether they might consider changing it to ASVS? I think that will help in the future as well, right? I think so. It's a more complicated thing to ask. It's like OWASP top 10, here's your 10 basic overall categories and requirements versus here's ASVS with 300 requirements. It's a harder ask, even though I, I, I'm remiss that the PCI Council chose the OWASP top 10, PCI overall has been a net benefit. It really pushes organizations, for the most part, down the right path. So I, I still think PCI DSS is positive. I do not know if they're removing the OWASP top 10 from it, but I, I, I do think they're, they're moving in a, in a good direction overall. As you know, every day you read in the paper, breaches, some sort of security vulnerability, lots of it's social engineering, but some of it is good old fashioned, you know, just not doing due diligence when it comes to application security. You know, we talked about policy. That's an extremely important from the company perspective, but more on a government level, like GDPR or some of these things that are related to privacy. Oregon and California recently had a, a couple of IoT laws that were put into place. Is that another place to go or would you still like to see better security done through the people that are actually creating the devices as opposed to, say, government regulation? Well, let's let's hit this from every angle. And I, I think one of the, the I think GDPR pushed us in the right direction. The California privacy law, it's at the very least supporting a series of subject rights around privacy, like the right to be forgotten. You, you have to consent and give me clear language and explain what you're going to do with my data. You have to give me the right to export all of my data. These are good subject rights. And that alone has helped privacy across the world. That GDPR, anyone in the world who is either controlling or processing EU citizen or EU resident data, GDPR applies to you. And I think the, the, it's not perfect. There's not enough enforcement but I do think it's pushing everyone in the right direction. Same with the California privacy law. But what excites me about new regulation is the new IoT regulation. And I'm trying to find it as we're talking here, but there we go. Three, IoT legislation advances in, in Congress three days ago. Congress recently advanced legislation that directs the National Institute of Standards to create standards and guidelines for securing Internet of Things devices used by federal agencies and their contractors. Again, this is previously... From April of 2019 legislation 
being matured today. And that really excited me. Again, the largest procurer of IoT in the world is now forcing manufacturer laws. And I want to see more of that for the private space as well. Let's talk about the OWASP Cheat Sheet Series project. You and uh, Jacob Mikowski and all of the other fine contributors really have done a wonderful job at putting this thing together. The new website, the update looks really spectacular. For those who don't know, what is the OWASP Cheat Sheet Series project? The OWASP Cheat Sheet project is basically a living encyclopedia of application security and secure development knowledge. It's really made purely for developers to look at different subject matters and and see a group of experts who've provided a brief guide on that topic to inform you about application security topics. It started with Eric Sheridan doing a C-Surf cheat sheet 18 years ago and Jeff Williams doing a SQL injection one. It's turned into a, a, a full collection of guides now maintained by a group of people. And and this project frustrates me. I used to run it and be the chief editor. I just commit to master in a wiki and we're done. Now we're in GitHub and there's, there's opinions and I can't just commit to master my opinions anymore. I have to listen to other people's (laughs) opinions. Oh, that's poor me. Oh, poor Jim. No, it it makes it, it makes it better. Like my, my main helper and and the, the, the main person who's automated the whole project in terms of building the guides when we get an edit from GitHub the person who's put the most effort and passion into it is Ilar from, from Beirut. He's also been my nemesis, not like he's been blocking a lot of my check-ins lately because he likes to put variables in Java. He likes to put high-powered tokens in JavaScript variables. I'd rather you put it in an HTTP-only cookie. And, and he's like, well, well, XSS, I could still abuse the cookie. It doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, well, let's still put it in a secure component anyways. Well, let's use closures or let's use uh, web workers. And then Philippe, Dr. Philippe Durick shows up and says, sorry, Jim, doesn't matter. I can steal from web workers. I can steal. From... So these are the kinds of conversations we're having. Ilar, myself, Dr. Durick, lots of other incredibly intelligent people. I just can't commit to master anymore when I have an opinion. I have to work with a community of smart people. And it makes it a better project. Salute to you, Ular. You may have not considered this, but I think the quality of security bug submission reporting has gone up as a result of this project. I do respect the CWE system, but yours is just the right blend of words to use when, say, you're filling out a security vulnerability in, in a tool like Jira or something, because it really does speak to developers, in my opinion. And it saves us a lot of time from re-explaining something over and over again, where we can either point them to this or take excerpts from it and make it sound like we're smart, but it's really coming from this project. So kudos to you on this thing. Right on. You really got to give Elar Lang some credit out of, out of again, out of Beirut and Jacob Mikowski um, from Poland, who really taken the project, the bull by the horns and helped mature it into a more group opinion and, and, and group uh, assessment of these issues. And they've done an amazing job maturing it. They really deserve a lot of credit for that project. All the credit. Yeah. Thank you. Two questions, two part question for you. One, you mentioned very early in this conversation that part of being in AppSec is you got to be reading all the time and learning all the time. What things are you reading right now that are intriguing you and, and keeping you engaged? And then also the second part to it is where do you source things? Like I find there's a number of lists that I subscribe to that that give me a lot of, of good things to read on a weekly basis. I, I source everything through Twitter. I have, I have like 15,000 AppSec 
ish people that I follow are following me. And like, I, I, so I follow people like Chris Kristoff, Lucas Weichelbaum, Mike West, uh, Philippe DeRick. I, he, he, I, mean, I work with him as well. And I, I, I keep an eye on what he's doing. And I, I read it. And I, I put a lot of my focus these days into OAuth and OIDC. Hmm. A lot of the stuff around AppSec, I, I understand, understand well. I've studied it for a decade. And I'm, I, I, but OAuth is coming up and OIDC comes up so much. And the questions are so difficult. And the protocol is a challenge. And there's 20 add-on RFCs to understand some of the other issues. And there's the there's the mobile native, there's the client credentials, there's the authorization code flow, there's the deprecated, sometimes needed implicit flow, there's JSON web tokens in play, there's cryptography in play, there's a variety of mutual TLS interest server, there's it is there's so complicated. I want to be like Philippe and really understand OWAF. And I feel like I've been putting a lot of work into watching all these presentations from the top experts in this area, reading the key RFCs over and over and over again. And after studying this for two years, I really feel like I've just started to understand the basics in the last like like month. I've been teaching like mad, like I've been doubling up teaching two classes some days the last couple of months. That's been my Corona experience. It's nonstop teaching as, as more companies go online. It's crazy. So I'm busy. I'm busy. But I, in all my spare time, I'm studying two things. I'm studying OAuth 2 to understand all the secondary flows and add on RFCs well. And I'm studying the, the Hawaiian language as well, right? I'm studying, studying a little bit of Hawaiian. I want to understand Hawaiian. So that those are the, these are two complex, Hawaiian languages, brutally hard, hard sentence structure. So that, that's what I'm studying these days, good sir. Is that pidgin? Not pidgin. Okay. Actual, like actual Hawaiian. So I'm using a, a program called Duolingo, right? It's like a little gamified a language app. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning, like, for example, let's, let's, let's just fire this up here. What do we got here? Come on, Duolingo. So like, she is a police officer, has a fun, so what is that? She is, so what is that? That's going to be, hey, ko'o'i'o'ia. No, that's not right. Um, Hey, uh, maka'i'o'ia. Uh, uh, that's, I think, yeah, maka'i, uh, that, that's police officer. So is it maka, is it maka'i'a or ka, uh, ka'ua? It's o'ia, because that she is. Let me see if I got this right. Check. Yeah. So, hey, uh, Maka'i O'ia, she is a police officer. This is probably not the most apropos topic to bring up, but yeah. Okayulani ko inoa. What's that? Okayulani, Okayulani ko inoa. So that's, what's that? That's, is your name Kayulani? Is your name Kayulani? Yeah, I got it right. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning Hawaiian. Just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living here and I'm going to live here to the last of my days. And I, I want to understand the local Hawaiian culture better. And I'm going to go, I'm, so I'm, I'm prepping to learn Hawaiian now by doing Duolingo. And I'm going to go take Hawaiian studies classes at the local college in the fall. Now that I'm, I don't have to travel anymore. I can actually like experience the local Hawaii community. I'm very excited. So Jim, you've had a most admirable career in security for people new to security and we have many in our chapter. Do you have any advice to give them? And read. I mean, read some of the key OWASP documents like ASVS, the Cheat Sheet series, um, OWASP Top 10. And some, I think those and, – and, and learn that core material and branch out from there. And I think it's hard to read these documents. So I, I want to acknowledge one of the smartest women in the world, Marie Von Svant, one of the highest recorded – 
IQs ever. She's a Mensa member. And she was asked how she was so smart. And she said, I read everything three times. And I listened to her and she helped me. She said, read everything once really quick, as fast as you can zip through it, sloppy style. Then read it a second time very carefully like a normal read. And then go read it a third time with the highlighter in your hand. The physical activity of highlighting will help reinforce it. And if you have the discipline to, because these standards are hard to read. So if you read them three times with that methodology, it will help you really embrace the knowledge and set you ahead of your peers. That's what it takes to be a security champion is to really have the requirements of ASVS in wetware, in memory, to have meaningful threat modeling conversations. And that's that's what I would advise you aim for if you want to be a security architect in the, in the AppSec world. So thank you so much for spending time with us, Jim. Do you have any upcoming events or anything else you'd like to talk about or promote? I do not. I'm just, I'm really happy to see the changes in OWASP with, with Andrew Vanderstock's leadership. And I'm very grateful to all of you in Portland for still caring about OWASP and volunteering your, your valuable time and caring about promoting application security. So I just want to end with everybody at OWASP who volunteers, thank you for what you do and for caring about our mission of spreading awareness around application security. Aloha. I'll give you a little, let me do a little, aloha y cacao. You know, aloha everybody. There's bad, bad Hawaiian. I'm learning, but aloha everybody. Aloha. I'll do one more. I got one more. Even better. I'll do, I'll do one more. Here's my final words of the day. My final words are, ahui ho cacao, malama pono. So until we meet again, everybody, take good care. Thank you, Jim. And again, thank you, everyone at OWASP for what you do. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to OWASP.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.